0: We can take your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, there is a handout if you need that as well. Uh, I'll be trying to stay stationed here. I guess we're having a little problem with my mic on the video. And so uh, I'm saying that for accountability. So if you see me wandering to one side or the other, just kind of push me back uh, over here this morning. I want to look with you at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, last week we opened up the scriptures together in the morning service and we found out that after the introduction to the epistle Paul immediately identifies a problem or the problems of quarreling and division in the assembly of the Corinthians. Chloe's people had informed him that there was quarreling and division in the assembly. Some people were saying they were of Paul the apostle, others that they liked Peter or Cephas, others Apollos. And perhaps even some were saying that they were of Christ. We saw in the text that some of the Corinthian believers were dividing up and lining up behind at least three different personalities in the church, probably because of what each man offered to them. More particularly, last Sunday morning, I suggested that some Corinthian believers were expressing confidence in their leader because of how much wisdom and eloquence his message contained. Now, the more one is aware of the actual culture in the first century, I think the more we can begin to understand how a group of believers would boast like this in any one super-apostle. I was reading not too long ago in an introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians, written by a scholar by the name of Justin Hardin. And he, write, he wrote this. He said, Among the public celebrities of Paul's day were the orators called sophists or wise ones. He said, These men were known for dynamic presentations and oratorical polish. He continues. After arriving in the city with much fanfare, a sophist would invite the city's inhabitants to hear him speak on any given subject. After his presentation, wealthy citizens would flock to register their children for private lessons. Helps us understand a little bit more of the culture. And and Hardin's comment is that sometimes public uh, speakers were treated as the celebrities of the first century. And you could uh, read descriptions of how they would uh, receive these sort of people into the city. They would go out into the suburbs of the city and, and greet them, and then come back into the city with the guest speaker. seems that some Corinthian believers continued to be drawn to public displays of wisdom and were riveted by flashy speaking gifts, And so in answer to this problem in the church of Corinth, Paul begins a lengthy discussion of the nature of true wisdom. True wisdom is God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is not found necessarily in the gifts of any one human leader of the church or any one public speaker. God's wisdom, as you could read in your handout at the beginning there, God's wisdom is found in an unlikely place. And so, for really the, the rest of chapter one, into chapter two, Paul talks about the nature of true wisdom, and he describes it as being unlikely in its substance, in its recipients, but then also in the way it was delivered to the Corinthians. And this morning we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. We'll see the substance of God's wisdom is the cross of Christ. Let's read this passage. I'll read it out loud. You can follow along. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the wise or where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand science and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. In This passage, Paul will describe the very substance of God's wisdom as being found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now specifically, the way I would outline this, I see Paul talking about the cross in two ways. He talks about the significance of the cross and the way it was received or the recipients of the cross. And so uh, verses 18 through 21 describe the significance of the cross or why does Paul proclaim the message of Jesus Christ as the power of God? Now, in your Bible, there's a very interesting thing that sometimes in in our English translations we don't pick up on very easily. I want you to see. In verse 17, just before this, uh, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with... And in the original, he gives two words here. Words, wisdom. Uh, Paul did not use words of human wisdom... Instead, verse 18, he used word, cross, the word of the cross. If the Corinthian believers had been putting some sort of pressure on Paul to become more eloquent in his speaking, he says, I deliberately have chosen not to use human wisdom in my message to you, but to portray Jesus Christ crucified in my message to you. So that is why the cross is so significant to Paul. The reason why he proclaimed it is found in verse 18. Verse 18 is the reason why the cross was a significant part, or the significant part of Paul's message. Look at verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so, if the Corinthian assemblies cornered Paul and they said, Well, why do you always talk about the cross in your speaking and in your public, you know, uh, preaching? He would say, Because it's God's power. Okay, that's the reason why Paul proclaims the cross. But why does Paul use the cross here? Some one of the pastors who remained nameless this week, asked me this question on Friday and it threw me into a tailspin for the next two days. Why the cross if we're talking about power? Okay. Th- that probably wouldn't have been the way I would have described the cross. If I were to describe the cross in relation to God, I might use it to describe the sacrifice of God. Or the love of God. When I think of the cross, right, I think of God's great sacrifice. He gave his son. I think of the love of God, that Jesus would die for us. When I think of the cross, I might even think of the weakness of God, the weak thing of God. I don't think of power. If I were to describe the power of God, you know what I would use? Changed lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, or better yet, the resurrection. Now, that's power, right? Are you with me on that one? That's the power of God. So how could Paul say that the message of the cross is the power of God? Well, that's what he tells us. That's what he explains in verses 19 through 21. How is the cross? The power of God is keep reading in your Bible. And in verses 19 through 21, Paul gives the justification for how he could say the cross is the power of God. Look with me in verse 19. It says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. I think Paul gives two justifications for seeing the cross as the power of God. The first one is found in verses 19 and 20, where Paul basically says something like this, God destroyed human wisdom and he thwarted human intelligence through the cross. Therefore, that's what I'm going to preach. God destroyed human wisdom and thwarted human intelligence through the very event of the cross. So that's what I'm going to preach. Verse 19, it's, it's very interesting to me that Paul quotes an Old Testament text. A very important text. Uh, Isaiah chapter 29. And I want to invite, I'd invite you to turn back there in your Bibles for a moment. Isaiah chapter 29. Actually, Paul's exposition of God's wisdom is founded primarily on two Old Testament texts in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 19, he quotes Isaiah. In verse 31, at the end of our chapter, he quotes Jeremiah. Come back this evening to hear more about Jeremiah and why he's quoting that. But here, Paul bases his exposition of God's true wisdom on twin pillars from the Old Testament scripture. The Old Testament has something to say about the wisdom of God in boasting in human people. And so Paul uses his Bible with the Corinthians. See, so he's got a church that is boasting in human personalities, and so what Paul does Uh, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is he goes to the places in his Bible that he thinks will help them. There are actually 17 times in 1 Corinthians where he will do this. He will quote the Old Testament to further and support his argument. And I I give you those in a footnote in your handout. And every time we see them, we're going to stop and we're going to go back and we're going to see what is Paul doing with his Bible. Um, I think this is fascinating. I think it helps us. Well, In Isaiah chapter 29, we'll start reading in verse 1. Verse 1. It says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel. Ariel is probably a description of the city of Jerusalem. He's associating it with the city of David a little bit later on. He's associating it uh, with with Zion, Mount Zion later. So I think Ariel, Ariel is another title for Jerusalem. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there'll be mourning or moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel, which could also be uh, an idea for lion, word Ariel means lion. Verse 3, and I will encamp against you all around, and I will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low from the earth. You shall speak. And from the dust, your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust, your speech shall whisper. It's saying, Israel, Jerusalem here, the city of Jerusalem is gonna be brought low. It's gonna be like they're speaking out of the dust. Verse five, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless, like passing chaff. Seems like Israel is giving Jerusalem some reason to hope. Your, your foreign Uh, nations, your your foes, they're going to be like small dust. And in an instant, suddenly you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, against Jerusalem, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, uh, she shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. And when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. Verse 10, for the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. Verse 13, and the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is simply a commandment taught by men, therefore behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and, quotation, the wisdom of the wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men will be hidden. I want to help you understand a little bit of what's going on here in this passage of Isaiah. This text, Isaiah 29, occurs in the middle of what uh, people, scholars will call the woe oracles of Isaiah, where he is giving words of lamentation and mourning for Jerusalem especially and Judah of the southern kingdom. The structure of the first part of Isaiah is twofold. It's it's arranged around two oracles or vision. In the first oracle that we just read in verses 1 through 8, God will deliver Israel physically, or will deliver Jerusalem physically. He will come to their aid and help them despite the fact that they have been relying on, and catch this, human alliances with countries like Egypt. What you need to know to understand Isaiah 29, you know, we read that passage, it's kind of hard to understand, is that Jerusalem is just about ready to be besieged by the kingdom of Assyria. And with this great threat on the city of Jerusalem, Assyria has been wiping out various cities north of Jerusalem. They're coming down to Jerusalem. But with this great threat, Jerusalem turns to an alliance. They put confidence in, in a human nation, Egypt, to deliver them. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, basically says, Egypt isn't going to help you. All of your false alliances are going to be stripped away, and the only thing or person who will deliver you will be God himself. God himself will do this. I think that verses 1 through 8 are primarily fulfilled in the Old Testament. You could read about it in 2 Kings chapter 19, where Assyria is ready to capture Jerusalem. And on one day in an evening, the angel of the Lord goes through the host of Assyria and wipes out or kills 185,000 soldiers. So in this Old Testament text, Isaiah says, don't trust human power. Egypt can't help you. The only one who can is God. But then in verses 9 through 14, you have the second oracle or vision. Here, where Isaiah describes Jerusalem's need for spiritual deliverance. Now, not only need to be saved physically, but spiritually. Because they are blind and they're spiritually insensitive. Look at verse 10. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. It's so bad for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it's like they're, they're in a coma, completely insensitive to the revelation of God. They've been taught by the prophets and the religious leaders of Jerusalem to say all the right things, but their hearts are far from God. You see verse 13 that we read? And the Lord said, because his people draw near with me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from it, they've taught everything to say. They've got the right words, but they don't have power. God is going to come and he's going to wipe away their false alliances. And then in verse 14, the verse where he quotes from in 1 Corinthians, He says that he's going to do wonderful things among them. You see that in your Bible? Wonderful things among them. Now, I might think that this would describe the the, the awe and the shock that God would do in judging them. But that's not how I read this verse. In verse 14, after all of their alliances, all of the things that they used to trust in are not going to help, then God will come and he'll do a wonderful thing among them. Now, he doesn't tell us what the wonderful thing is, but he does give us the results. When I do my wonderful thing among you, the result is the wisdom of the wise will be destroyed and the intelligence of the intelligent people will vanish away. What their kings, their advisors what the prophets and religious leaders, what the brightest of their military intelligence, what their foreign alliances offered will be taken away by God, smashed, and will vanish away like smoke. And then God himself will come and deliver them. So go back to 1 Corinthians. Say, man, that was a long time in the Old Testament. Yes, it's good. Go back to 1 Corinthians. So Paul has a problem with people putting confidence in human leaders and boasting in human wisdom. So he uses a text about God's people relying upon human strength, but then God crushing human wisdom and intervening in a different way. And it's interesting to me that what Paul the Apostle does, I think this text, that Isaiah text, was fulfilled with that way God helped the Assyrians, but in 1 Corinthians, it seems that Paul believes that the cross of Jesus also is God's way to fulfill his promise of deliverance for his people. I mean, most importantly, Paul suggests that at the cross, God again acted to crush decisively those within the world who claim it, that intelligence or wisdom will help them. So look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, and verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19, for it is written, let me ground this in Scripture, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discerning he will thwart. I think what Paul is saying is that God did that at the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was crucified, God destroyed human wisdom, and he thwarted human intelligence. I think a little bit later on in this text, he'll describe that a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. Look in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. Actually, verse... 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul's making the case in 1 Corinthians 2, 8 that the brightest minds of the first century did not understand God's wisdom. And that is demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ. For it was the brightest minds, the rulers, the Roman rulers, the Jewish rulers who were active in crucifying Jesus. Paul says, you you, you want me to prove that the best intellects in our world don't understand God's wisdom? Look at the people who crucified Jesus. They claim to be so smart. They claim to be full of wisdom. Yet they were the very ones who crucified Jesus. They just don't get. God's wisdom. And so I think in chapter one, what's going on here is Paul saying the cross is God's wisdom and power smashing tool. Okay. Okay, now go back to verse 20. That in verse 20, he asks these three questions, which I take as a taunt of the wise people in this world. Paul loves to issue uh, taunts over things Jesus has been victorious over. He'll often use the word where like he does in this text. Three times he repeats the question, where? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Does that in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Well, 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Where is the sting of death? Where is the victory of death? Taunting death. But here it's wise people. He says, where is the wise one? By this, Paul means, where is the philosopher, or the one who prides himself in wisdom? Second, he asks, where is the scribe? This would be in reference to the Jewish teachers of the law. Even their teaching fails to consider accurately the wonderful provision found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And then he taunts again uh, this third group of people. He says, where is the disputer of this age? Here, Paul confronts the skilled orator. Or the public debater. And although these three types of people were perceived as professional experts, they all failed to consider the splendid provision of the cross of Jesus Christ. And here, through the cross, God made made the world's most gifted look utterly foolish. And so you ask Paul, why do you preach about the cross all the time? I think he would say that he proclaims it because through the cross, God powerfully refuted, destroyed human wisdom and he rejected human intelligence. But then the second reason is right after that in verse 21. and It'll help us understand what I've been talking about even to this point a little bit better. In verse 21, the second justification for Paul saying the cross is a power of God is he preaches the cross because with it, God did something that human wisdom and human intelligence could not do. With the cross, God delivered or saved those who believe. Look at verse 21 now in your Bible. For since in the wisdom of God, again God's wise plan, the world did not know God through wisdom, through human wisdom, human wisdom, would not empower lost people to know God. Since that was his plan, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay? So Paul makes it clear that bright human beings could not do anything to save themselves. With with all of their combined wisdom, the world could not contrive a way to deliver or save themselves. There is only one way by which someone can be saved or delivered from sin and the death that is a consequence of their sin and the eternity in hell that comes through sin and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. So you ask Paul, if you're one of the Corinthian believers, why do you just keep saying so much about the cross of Jesus Christ that he would say, well, because with it, God did something. He did something that the brightest minds in our world could never accomplish. He delivered those who have faith. He delivered those who would have faith. This is the significance of the cross. This is why Paul could say that the cross is the power of God. It reminds me of the parallel text in Romans 1, verse 16, where Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins, and he rose again for our sins. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's why Paul had so much to say about the cross of Jesus Christ. It's it's a part of God's power. Is saving power. That leads us in just our last few minutes here to the reception of the cross and how people responded to it in verses 22 through 25. So here Paul briefly talks about the way people respond. I see two general responses. The first one I call it wrong views of the gospel and then the second one will be a wrong views of the cross and then the second one will be a worthy view of it. Look with me in verse 22. Paul says, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Here Paul says that some people view the gospel of Jesus Christ as a stumbling block. He actually says in verse 22, he says, the Jews as a people require signs. I think what he's picking up here is is something that you could see in the Gospels in the New Testament that the Jewish people as a nation kept going up to Jesus asking him for signs to verify or authenticate who he was. I think, for instance, in John chapter 2, Jesus goes and he does this uh, amazing thing, right, in the temple. He realizes that people are gathering in his father's house for all the wrong reasons. They're distracted. They're concerned with money and their own things. And so what does Jesus do? You remember this from the stories you may have learned when you're a kid? He goes into the temple and he overturns the tables, right? And out of holy or righteous zeal, he gets a whip and he he basically causes a stampede of the livestock in in the temple. And so the Jews ask, what sign do you have that would verify your right to do this? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his own body. But the Jews are always looking for powerful signs to authenticate or validate someone's message. And and this text, I think, is revealing that the Jews miss the, the most powerful sign of God's power the world has ever seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. Sure, the cross did not part the Red Sea, It did not create a pillar of fire above their heads. It did not cause the walls of Jericho to come crashing down, but the crucifixion did tear the veil of the temple in two and stir dead bodies from the grave. Even more importantly, the crucifixion combined with the resurrection was God's means of overcoming human sinfulness. To the Jews, the cross was not a sign of power. It was actually a stumbling block. You see that in your Bible, a stumbling block? It comes from one Greek word, the Greek word scandalon. Scandalon. Sounds like our English word scandal. And to the Jewish people, the preaching of a Messiah who would, would be crucified was a complete and utter Scandal. It was a contradiction in terms. I mean, you could have a Messiah, and the Jews were longing for the anointed one to come from God, right? You could have a Messiah. Messiah would mean God's power, God's strength, God's victory. And you could have a crucifixion, okay? But uh, crucifixion means... Curse to the Jews. Under God's curse, curse of the law, it means weakness, and so on. You could have crucifixion. This is how criminals are killed, but you could not put them together, right? A crucified Messiah? Something they kept stumbling over. He talks about another false or wrong view of the gospel when in the same text, he talks about the Greeks viewing it as foolishness. It's foolishness. Again, I'm not going to overwhelm you with all the Greek words here, but this one is another trans, fairly transparent word. It's morion. It's moronic. This word simply carries with it the meaning of madness. It's nonsense for anyone to trust that. The Greeks were impressed with philosophy and the mind. They were seeking philosophical development or scientific rationale. Explain how it's possible. To these sort of people, the message of Jesus Christ crucified was complete madness, was utter insanity. There's a Greek philosopher by the name of Protagoras, who said this, he says, he's, he's well known for saying this, man is the measure of all things. Okay, and with that statement, you capture the way many Greeks in the first century would respond, and after Protagoras, the years after him, and that is that they would set themselves up as the arbiters of truth. We will judge if something makes sense. So consequently, many many in Corinth would think this way as well. Corinth was a Greek city. And the message of a savior being crucified was complete foolishness to that sort of mind. For just a moment, I invite you to turn back to Acts chapter 17 to show you the way another Greek city, not too far away from Corinth, responded to To the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and His resurrection. Remember, Paul in Athens, he's preaching to this uh, very high, polished society. They're boasting in all sorts of different gods. In Athens, Paul goes up into Mars Hill. When he's there, he begins to tell them about the true God. Look at Acts 17, verse 22. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. Verse thirty. The times of the ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. How would a Greek mind respond to the message of a crucified Savior for the sins of his people and someone being bodily resurrected from the dead? Some believed, but many mocked like to ask this question how uh, Dr. Olala, one of my former mentors, would ask this question. He would always ask the question in Athens. He would say, when did the dust fly at Athens? And the answer is, when Paul talked about someone being resurrected from the dead. What is this man saying? The Greek people in Athens begin to mock they mocked, perhaps here, because it did not make sense to their well-educated minds. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment. We'll wrap up this text. As you do that, I want to make just a few moments of application. I say some things never change. Humanity still attempts to fit the immeasurable God of the universe Into a box of their own making for their own purpose. See, even today, we live in a culture when experts and the media debate facts and alternative facts as if God has not given us the truth. No, we have the truth, God has spoken. The truth is found in the word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them through truth. Thy word is truth. We have truth. We have facts. It comes from God. He has spoken. These are the facts. But we also see this in the greater church where people, even believers, sometimes long to control or contain God for their own purposes. Some contemporary believers are adjusting the scriptures in order to fit their theology. This past week, I was listening to um, Al Mohler in um, a podcast called The Briefing, and he was describing something I'd been aware of for a while, but it was very interesting as he described it. It was based off of an article in the National Review, It was a review of two divinity schools, Duke Divinity School and Vanderbilt Divinity School. And what he suggested in the article is he said, many divinity schools are now sending down policies to their teachers and their students about how they should refer to God. They require students to avoid using masculine language when referring to God. Instead, to use inclusive language they do not want their students or professors any longer to use the pronouns he or him in referring to God. Instead, or himself. Instead, you should say God or God-self, not himself. This really comes out of a Christian feminist movement that started in the 70s and now in some of our Christian schools and seminaries people are saying, you should translate the Lord's Prayer this way. Don't say, our Father, which art in heaven. Say, our Mother. Or as the very guidelines of Duke Divinity School say, say, our Parent, which is in heaven. But men and women, that's a sad tribute to the condition of our churches and some of our seminaries when... Believers begin changing the language of Scripture in order to fit their theology. Instead, God has every right to communicate in whatever way he chooses. And he did. He said, our Father, which art in heaven. And who are we? Who are we, right? To question or change the way he said it. Sometimes even Christians attempt to dress up the message to make it more appealing, more entertaining, less offensive, or more sophisticated. Paul, however, refuses to do that. He offers no human wisdom, simply the cross of Jesus Christ, regardless of how the world will perceive him or even other believers. It was the cross of Jesus Christ. So you see these wrong views of the gospel. Some think it's a stumbling block. They trip over it. Others think it's foolishness. by I love verses 24 and 25. Don't you love this? But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men. You could basically translate this for the foolishness thing of God is wiser than man, and the weak thing of God is stronger than men. The, perce- the perception by the world would be to describe the cross as that's the foolish thing of God, or that's the weak thing of God. And Paul says, on the contrary, with that he has overcome human wisdom and human strength. And he is able to do what no other human being could do, provide deliverance for those who are damned in their sins. That's the importance of the cross. And the only right way to respond to Jesus Christ crucified is to see it as the very wisdom and power of God to save. A few years ago, an older man wanted to take me out to eat. I'd known this man for quite a while. He was an, un- was an unbeliever. I actually had the privilege of being there when uh, his former wife uh, came to know the Lord as her Savior, as an older woman. Her name was Millie. But then Millie uh, got sick and was dying. Millie asked me before she died, she said, Brent, she says, never give up on my husband, Gene. Would you promise me? She's like making me promise, you know. So, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick to this promise. Never give up on my husband, Gene. So Gene asked me to go out to eat uh, several months after his wife had passed away. So I get there, and I find out that Gene has found um, another uh, 70-year-old person, and he wants to get married. And so he wants me to perform uh, the wedding. And so You know, as I'm walking through this, it's a little bit of a shock to me. I thought, okay, all right, yeah, this is is good. So I started asking uh, the woman he was going to marry about the Lord. And I found out that she was a believer in Christ as well. But then this was this great opportunity. I remember we're sitting in a restaurant. I turned to Gene. I said, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? And he replied in ways like this. He said, Jesus is a very good man. We should emulate him. I read the words of Jesus often, and I try to be like him. But then I'd been studying 1 Corinthians. I said, yeah, but what do you think about the cross? What do you think about the cross? You believe that on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And he said this. He says, I just can't believe that. I don't believe that. I just don't see how that could be possible. I got to describe to him that day that unless you see God's wisdom in the cross of Jesus Christ, you will never be delivered from your sins. It may be that there is some person in the audience this morning who has never believed on the cross as God's way to overcome your sin. You must do that my appeal would be for you to do. I would plead with you like I pled with Gene that day that you would turn to Christ. It may also be that there are some within our congregation who'd be tempted to be ashamed of the cross, different opportunities that we have with the lost, or try to dress up the cross, try to freshen up the message, and yet change it in some way or another. May that never be true of God's people. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of coming here this morning. I thank you, dear Father, that the wisdom and power of God in the cross crushed human wisdom, thwarted human intelligence. And that in the cross, you were able to do something that mankind, as best as we try, was never able to do. And that would be to provide salvation. Lord, if there is someone in this auditorium or on our campus today that has never believed in the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus' crucifixion for their sins, and his resurrection for their sins, I pray that this morning would be the time, the, the moment when they would turn to Christ as well.